My wife has made a very good suggestion. Um, it reminded me of a cartoon that I saw one time of a pastor, especially as churches were smaller. We, I, I used to, at the end of the service, try to get to the back and greet people as they leave. And I saw a cartoon of a pastor. Everybody that passed by, he shook their hand, said, nothing personal, nothing personal, nothing personal. And um, my wife thought it might be wise for me to make a disclaimer that uh, my message was formed long before some of the conversations and texts and emails I've gotten this week. Um, not, not that they were anything bad, but I do want to talk about um, trials and struggles that seem to be prevalent uh, among not only our church, but Christians in general seem to be going through a season of a lot of confusion, of a lot of difficulty. Um, some, a, a friend of mine used a phrase that I got permission to share today, and he said, it just seems that people in so many situations are just sitting in a fence. And I thought he said sitting on the fence. And, um, you know, like undecided. And I, I remember thinking, uh, people I know aren't undecided. They got very strong opinions over here or over here. But he didn't say sitting on a fence. He said sitting in offense. And he was saying that it just seems that we're going through a season right now where we are just primed and ready to take offense at everything that happens. Um, whether it's in church, government, business, waitress in a restaurant. And I, I, really, I, I really think that that's true. I think we are um, prone right now because of what the nation has been through in the last few years and last year especially. I think we have embraced as a society an idea of uh, incivility. I think that the church has given up um, letting faith be the first resort of troubles that we face. And we have all kinds of responses. Some of us, it's to sit in offense. Some of us sit in nonsense. Um, you know, we, we look for prophetic word. We look for somebody to tell us something. And we somehow think that a, po a personal prophetic word is going to somehow fix what's lacking in our relationship to the written word. And uh, so I, I want to say today, um, I, I, I want to just talk to you as a pastor. This, in fact, I want to ask you to give me two Sundays because I know I can't share everything that's on my heart today and I won't try, so don't worry. But some of it is, defies outlining. Some of it defies um, sermonic principles. Part of it does, and that's what I want to share with you today, but I need to just open my heart to you. I just need to talk to you as a pastor. Now, I know what you're thinking. You say, Pastor, you've been to general counsel. You've been out two weeks. Whenever that happens, you preach for, you know, you, you not only want it to be eternal, you want it to be everlasting. But um, that's, not, that's not what's going on here. And I want to ask you to condition your response to the Lord, because whenever I deal with things like this, a lot of times people say, well, boy, you know, you nailed our hide to the barn today. And you, you really, guys, I'm not after that. I don't want that. I don't find any joy in correction. I don't find any joy in rebuke. And I tell you something else to say, boy, you got us is not the right response we're looking for. We're looking for a response of humility. I want you to go on your face before the Lord as I've had to go on my face before the Lord um, over, over the last uh, maybe three weeks or so. We need a response of change me. Now, the message today, and, and, and let me just say this, God is not angry with his church. Now, we know that God is angry with some things in society. The scripture says he is. But he's not angry with his church. He loves the church far more than pastors do and far more than church members do. He loves his church. But I tell you what I believe he is also doing. He is working to wean us, as Jack Taylor said a couple of years ago, he is working to wean us off of this world 
and its systems. And we want, we desperately want everything to go back to normal. We desperately say, you know, I just want the good old days. And I'm becoming more and more convinced that the only thing that's coming back for sure is Jesus. Um, I think it was Carrie Newhoff, I think, that had a, had a blog where he said, pastors are falling into five categories uh, today. And I think it's true not only of pastors, but of churches. Um, Justin, can I throw this to you here? Thank you. It's weighing me down, weighing me down. I need to be free. Um, he said the first group of pastors are deniers. There's nothing going on with the virus. There's nothing going on with politics. Nothing can be trusted. Nothing can be real. And, and that's probably a very comfortable position to take is denial. He said there's a second group called reverters. He said, they just, they, they're not open to change or a new perspective. All they want to do is keep going back to old systems and old patterns and old structures that uh, may in and of themselves be flawed and structured. He said, the third group is resigners. And loved ones, I am, I am not complaining. I've never felt I was in the will of God more than I do right now. Never been happier as a pastor than I am right now. But I also want you to know this is the toughest time to pastor I've known in my life. And I'm at, a, I'm at the world's greatest church. So you can imagine how other pastors feel. It's a tough time to be a pastor. And it's a tough time to lead a class. It's a tough time to be in any kind of spiritual leadership in the church. So we shouldn't be surprised <coughs> that whether it's in the pastorate or whether it's in the home or whether it's in jobs or whether it's in families, there's an epidemic of I don't have the emotional energy to go to the next level. Resigners don't, they're not denying, they're not reverting. They're just saying I don't have what it takes to take me and my responsibility to another level. And we're seeing an epidemic of churches that are closing. We're seeing an epidemic of pastors that are resigning. And then he said on the other side, there are adapters and innovators. And I think that's both good things. Those that say, okay, this is, it's not what we want, but it's what we've got, we're going to adapt. And some are going beyond adaptation and saying, we're going, to, we're going to be innovative. We believe that whenever God shuts one door, he opens another. And loved ones, as a pastor, I just want to call on you to let God pivot you in the right direction. I want you to understand that if you are going to live your life, here's something else, Justin. If you are going to live your life in offense, if you are going to live your life where nobody can do enough, nobody can say the right thing, nobody can represent you well enough, then you're going to spend the rest of your life in a miserable existence. <coughs> because this is out of control. Or at least out of our control. It's not out of God's control. And I think we need two things really renovated in our lives. Number one, we need to understand that God really is in control. And we need to understand that um, everything God does, even his denials are his blessings. I've never seen a time when it seems that everything that just seems so foundational and basic and essential to us is being rattled and shaken. We struggle with our jobs, we struggle with families, we struggle with churches, we struggle with our nation. But God is doing something in us to make us trust him when there's no reason outwardly to trust him. And I know you all agree with that, I know that. That's why I'm, I'm preaching in a safe haven today. But I, I think that it is essential that we not only give mental assent to these things, but that we take a step back <coughs> as we evaluate the last year and a half or longer. This, this incivility has lasted longer than a year and a half. Um, uh, it, it, there's been an incivility for the last five or six years that is off the charts. And not all of us saw it coming or we didn't see where it would end up. But we have got to take seriously the words 
of Paul to the Romans where we are not to be trans or, or, or conformed to this world, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And I think the biggest call of God to his people right now is not a political one, although politics are important. The biggest call of God to his people is not um, a, 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 in any of the things that we have let rise to the surface. It's not racial. It's not any of those things, as important as those things are. The critical place we are at is if we're going to be content to let the world go while we conform ourselves not to the world, but we allow ourselves to be conformed to God's image and God's will, and it, and it takes transformation. We saw 2020 expose what's in us. And 2021, I'm convinced, and we're already, you know, almost two-thirds of the way through it, 2021 has been given us not to get over 2020, but to decide what we're going to do with what we've been shown. Are you going to remain what rose in you in 2020? You say, well, I think, I think the Lord's pleased with me. Good, good, then put your roots down deeper. <clears throat> but if God is showing chinks in our armor, if God is showing flaws in our character, if God is showing us unforgiveness and pockets of carnality, then this year has been given to us, <coughs> excuse me, not to get over and recover from 2020, although I'm, I'm open to that. But God has given us 2021 to decide what we're going to do with 2022. He's given us this option to decide where we're going to go. And I know that there is unspeakable horror that we've had to deal with. I know that there is a sense that we're up against overwhelming odds and we're against unspeakable evil. I lost my brother to this thing called COVID. I'm not, I'm not sticking my head in the sand and saying these challenges aren't real. But I'm saying that we have always known that we're creatures of another kingdom. And we've always known that this world is not our home. And we mustn't let our worldview be determined by what this world does to us. And I expected amens. I expected the nodding of heads. I can hear some of you over the live streaming saying, yes, amen, that's right. But I want to ask you this question because it's the question that the Spirit has been hammering home to my heart for weeks now. Is it mental assent or is it life-changing conviction? I want to ask you, do you really find yourself longing for the Lord's return? <coughs> That's been incumbent upon every generation of Christians. And we have been raised in a culture, in America especially, <coughs> excuse me, I do not have COVID. <coughs> I kiss snotty grandchildren on the lips when I know I shouldn't. It's my fault. So I won't kiss any of you on the lips. But <laughs> please understand me. God is, is definitely after a transformation in us so that we, our, our pivot is different. You say, what do you mean the pivot toward heaven? I want you to know that what the second thing that God is after is not only us managing this world, <coughs> not only managing this world, but God is after us living for the next world. I named this message a pivot toward heaven because I was thinking of my old basketball days um, when I had a lot more hair and a lot less waist. And I had a coach and coaches, at least in my day, were so foundational to a, a young person's development. If you played varsity sports especially, they had a big role. And I, and I loved my coach. <coughs> and I was a guard because I was not big enough to be anything else. And I, had, I, I realized that I was getting boxed in during practice. I was not good enough to be a starter. I was good enough to make the team, but not good enough to be a starter. But I did everything I could to become a starter. And he stopped practice one day and he came out to me and he said, Steve, he says, 
you dribble well, but you don't have any clue of how to pivot. Well, I knew what a pivot was. You know, you, you put your pivot foot down and then you can move this foot. You can, you can lift this foot and move all around, but your pivot foot can't, live the, can't leave the ground. Now, my little grandson played basketball and there was no such thing as a pivot. No such thing as a dribble. You just, you just moved with the ball. And, and then when you go to the next level, you, 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 you do pivot after pivot. You put this foot down and then you put this foot down. And then you put this foot down and you're walking like a giant to the basket, but you've got to learn that when you do a pivot right, one foot goes down, whether it's your right or your left. And it means two things. You've got to learn when to stop dribbling because you don't want to stop dribbling too soon because you're stuck in that position. And when you stop dribbling, you choose a pivot foot. The, the official will watch and he'll determine your pivot foot. And then you can move the other foot all day long. You can go in all kinds of directions, but you can't move that pivot foot. That's just for those of you that don't know much about basketball. But this is what he said to me. He said, Steve, he says, you don't pivot well. He said, you've got to learn to pivot wisely. And this is something that I, I didn't, I, I, it was pure basketball to me then, but it's so much about life. He said, your decisions about pivoting will affect at least three movements of the ball and sometimes more. In other words, he said, when you choose which foot to pivot and you choose where to plant your pivot foot, he said, that decision, he said, it tells me the next three movements of the ball. He says, nobody thinks about pivoting, but you set the tone for everything that will happen next by where you decide to pivot. <laughs> and he showed me what he meant. And you know, he was really true. Depending on how you pivot, the ball ends up over there or the ball ends up over there. The ball goes to the big man or the ball goes to another guard. The pivot is absolutely essential. And I think that I'm using sports to try to help you understand the greatest decisions that are before you are not whether you're open for a three-point shot. The greatest decisions before you is not if you're going to get to drive the lane and do a layup. What you've got to do is make decisions now that will carry over into the next few steps that you make spiritually. And I want to read to you <coughs> a passage of scripture from the Apostle John. And remember, this is, this is not a regular sermon, so I'm going to read it to you three times. You say, uh, you say, why would you read it to us three times? Because generally it takes us about three times to read something to get it. And I wanted to read it to you from three versions. New American Standard, 1 John 3 says this, See how great a love the Father has given us that we would be called the children of God. And in fact, we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope set on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now, NIV puts it this way. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Let me read it one more time, a little closer to our vernacular. <laughs> See how very much our Father loves us, for He calls us His children, and that is what we are. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know Him. Dear friends, we are already God's children, but He has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears, but we do know that we will be like Him for we will see him as he really is. And all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure, just as he is pure. I want to give you a quote from my high school Bible. I wrote something that my pastor said. 
We have all been warned about being so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly good. You've all heard that, right? But loved ones, I believe there are a lot more of us who are so earthly minded that we are no heavenly good. That is where our attention ought to turn. The world and all its troubles and trials, as well as its treasures, are going to pass into nothing. What will be important to us when we see him? <coughs> what is it that we have loved and cherished? My pastor, who is being dead yet speaketh, he said, we struggle for balance and rightly so. But he said, the balance isn't that we're too heavenly minded. He said, the balance is that we're too earthly minded. And I remember that Sunday morning, my heart being smitten as he, as he asked, if Jesus were to appear right now, what would you have to present to him? What would be the dominant theme of your life? Is it connected to this world or the next one? Now, as I said, I've got some opening thoughts. I'm giving you all of it. It seems there's an epidemic of hopelessness. And it seems to me that even many of God's people have caved into anger, anxiety, or arrogance. Now, I want to say this. I have never been more proud of this church than I am right now. I, I, and I mean that sincerely. I'm not just trying to give a spoonful of sugar with distasteful medicine. I've never been more proud of this church than I am right now. I believe in you. The vast majority of this church has responded courageously and spiritually and dynamically and positively toward the events of the last 18 months or two years. I am so very proud of you. It's still a delight to be your pastor. I'm not worn out. I love you. You, you, you make me believe I've got the greatest job on planet earth. But so many of God's people, and I think the church in general, have lost a sense of hopelessness. And I think it is the work of the Holy Spirit that is exposing in us our lack of connection with heaven. That is our hope. When God poured his spirit out on the Western church in the 1950s and 60s and early 70s, I think the devil hijacked an outpouring of the Holy Spirit and polluted it by turning it into a name it and claim it movement where God was doing all that he was doing so we could have everything we want. And I think we've missed the dynamic work of the Holy Spirit to make us not comfortable, but to make us holy. And I think that God is allowing, <coughs> he's allowing difficulty because he wants to purge. He wants to purge us and bring us back to that place we used to be. Whenever my daddy would pick at my mom because she wasn't taking care of him right or wasn't giving him what he wanted, he'd start singing a song, you know, and, and, and we'd love to hear him sing it. Why don't you love me like you used to do? My hair's still curly and my eyes still blue. Why do you treat me like a worn out shoe? Why don't you love me like you used to do? And he'd sing it. Thank you. He'd sing it until she caved in and changed supper plans or did whatever, you know. Of course, as often as not, she didn't cave in. But God's not singing a sad song, but he is singing a melody to our hearts that's calling us back to what we were meant to be and not what compromised Christianity has caused us to pursue. I'm thankful for the work of God among people of Christian life, but some of us may need to look inwardly today to see if our hearts have been calloused or even corrupted by the events of recent years. And I want to say this again, the virus did not start this era in our history. It merely brought what we are to the surface. I thought the other day how serious this was. Jesus spoke to his disciples. And you know, I'd said something and a pastor friend of mine said, you ought to be more positive. Don't talk about the bad, talk about the positive. But Jesus, when he was speaking to his disciples before his betrayal, he said, look, this is a serious thing. And I have prayed for you because there's the real possibility of your faith failing. He said, now I prayed for you that it won't. 
<laughs> but Jesus wouldn't have prayed for something that wasn't a possibility. Henry David Thoreau said in 1854, most men lead quiet lives of desperation. A crust of bread, a corner to sleep in, a minute to smile and an hour to weep in, a pint of joy and a peck of trouble, and never a laugh but the moan comes double. That marks this age in which we're living. Now John 10, 10, I don't know what deflates mean. It was, it was a typo, but it tells us that Jesus' intent is for us to have an abundant life. Now, we know that he wants us to have an abundant life. That's not the question. The question is, what does an abundant life mean? And my contention is that most Pentecostal and charismatic groups <coughs> have meant that having an abundant life means I never have any challenge to my faith. I never have any struggle in my life. And God is like a janitor in the basement that I call up whenever there's a mess to be cleaned up instead of being the king on the throne. Uh, I've heard people say basically things like this. I put Jesus on hold because I'm upset with him the way he's treated me. What that means is until Jesus begins to perform better, or our anger against him is assuaged. You know, until God begins to behave better and be a better God, I'm, I love him, but I'm just putting this on hold. It's a dangerous place to be, loved ones. The world measures lives by beauty, brains, brawn, or bucks. But Jeremiah said this, this is what the Lord says, don't let the wise boast in their wisdom or the powerful boast in their power or the rich boast in their riches. But those who wish to boast should boast in this alone, that they truly know me and understand that I am the Lord who demonstrates unfailing love and who brings justice and righteousness to the earth and that I delight in these things. I, the Lord, have spoken. Jeremiah laid it out before us. Don't put your eggs in these baskets. Don't put your joy in these baskets. Understand this, that if there's anything we're going to celebrate in life, <coughs> it's not the way we look or the talents that we have or the riches that we may possess. It's not the intellect or the, or the scholarship that has marked our lives. Those are things that can be uh, easily manipulated and tainted. But he said, let it be that you know God and that you understand his ways. A rich man is, is poor without Jesus. A strong man is weak without Jesus. An intelligent man is ignorant without Jesus. And we must come to the end of ourselves to discover this abundant life. Ernest Hemingway, um, uh, um, Pulitzer Prize winner, a, a fantastic novelist. I love several of his books. He's known as kind of a, um, a pessimist. He committed suicide and had so many dysfunctional areas of his life. I want to say this. I think it was due to some physical maladies. I don't think he was particularly evil, but this is what he said. It seems as if we are a colony of ants living on the edge of a burning log. I love the way Pastor Adrian Rogers put it. Man is ignorant of his past and he's afraid of his future. So he's caught somewhere between mystery and misery. Now, with that in mind, I want you to understand that even if things change for the better, we may need to understand that we're like a person that has gone through trauma um, and the emotional scars may exist long after the physical trauma is over. I'm not saying that economy won't get better. I'm not saying that church won't get better. I'm not saying that politics won't get better. I'm not saying that America won't get stronger. But my concern is what balm is on your soul? Uh, some of you have scars that you will not allow to be healed. You say, well, it would be healed if so-and-so would do this. Nobody has the ability to do everything that some of you are demanding. Nobody has the ability to move past your offense and set that which is right in your heart. You are cursed to continue the rest of your life lamenting the failure of a past generation or a past relationship or maybe a present relationship. You are cursed and, and, 
and face an unending um, standoff with your offense and your hurt, your fear and your anger, unless you let the transforming power of the Holy Spirit move into your life. That's the only hope that you have. The Democratic Party can't fix it. The Republican Party can't fix it. Right-wingers can't fix it. Liberals can't fix it. The school board can't change it. <coughs> and this is what you really need to hear. Your husband can't fix it. Your wife can't fix it. Your parents can't fix it. It's a decision that we have to make. And the church of Jesus Christ is being called to the table right now to decide whose report are we going to believe. <coughs> now, with that in mind, I need to talk to you about the changes coming on two service schedule. I just saw my note, does me no good now. Uh, I tell you what, I'll, I'll send out a, an email tomorrow outlining those changes. I don't have time to say that it's on the 29th of August. And I don't have time to say that um, the first service will be at 8.30 and is going to be a streamlined service. It won't have baptisms and baby dedications, things like that. That'll be at the 10 o'clock service. So 8.30 and 10. I don't have time to tell you that there won't be children's services in the first service, but the nursery will be open for birth to age three. But second service will have full services for, for your children. I don't have time to deal with that. So please forgive me for not mentioning that. And, and I, because it's important that I tell you that at nine o'clock every Sunday morning, beginning on the 29th, prayer will be held for the services over in Brown Chapel from nine to 9.30. But I don't have time to deal with that. So I'll send a, I'll send a note to you. Now, let, let me tell you four things that I want you to remember today about this rant that I've just given you. Those passages that I read, or the passage that I read three times from John's epistle is written to people that are struggling with life and death issues. They were fighting corruption in the church. They were fighting apostasy and doctrine. They were fighting local persecution and were beginning the days of imperial persecution from Rome. And Paul said, look, children, look, loved ones, we do not put our trust in the favor of the government. We do not put our trust in the favor of the economy. We put our trust in that we are creatures of another dimension. And until the church begins to wrap our arms around this truth again, I'm afraid we're going to keep butting our heads over and over and over and over. We're going to keep butting our heads up against problems. We're going to keep running into the same snags. Some of you have said, oh, I feel like I'm just cursed. Nothing works. <coughs> and the reason might be because you haven't learned what God's trying to show you. And he's not trying to punish you. I want to say again, God is not angry with you. But he is a relentless teacher. And he keeps it. You say, well, I just feel like I failed him. I failed the test. Well, that's good. He'll give you another test. There's no social promotion. Oh, we're going to heaven. That's not the question. But you, he'll keep giving you the test until you can pass it. And instead of being angry at him for not doing what you want to do, maybe what we need to do is back up and say, what do I need to grasp that'll help me get past this point? I think there are four things that we see from this text, and I'm just going to touch them very quickly. Number one, we are created to be specially loved. You say, well, I don't feel like God loves me. If he loves me, why would he do these things? If he loved me, why would he allow these things? You and I, all of mankind can make this claim, but especially his children need to realize that we are created as objects of special love. John said, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. That Greek word is a very interesting word. It says, it literally means this, look at what otherworldly 
kind of love we have given us, he has given us. He says, this isn't worldly love. This isn't conditional love. This isn't erotic love. This isn't self-serving love. <coughs> this is love from another dimension. John 1 says, or yeah, John, the gospel chapter 1 says this. He came into his own creation and was rejected. But to everyone who would receive him, he gave the power to become the children of God. If you belong to Jesus especially, God has determined that you are the object of his special love. And if you are carrying around the impression that he doesn't love me, if he loved me, he wouldn't allow this. If he loved me, why doesn't he answer my prayer? If he loved me, this, that, or the other. You don't understand the basic foundational principle that John's laying out as an epistle in his epistle. You are the object of special otherworldly kind of love. So we have been sanctified, which means set apart for a special loving services. You say, well, how does God love me? You're, you're like, uh, or I should say, we're like sometimes the people of Israel in Malachi's day. God said, I have loved you. And they said, wherein have you loved us? How have you loved us? And it's interesting, the Hebrew word that he used, ahav, it's a word that means I have loved you with, with measurable evidence. He says, if you just look at your life, you can see how I've loved you. I, for instance, I know that God loves me because he cares for me. You remember what Jesus said? He said, consider the birds of the, of the air and the lilies of the field. He says, God takes care of them and they are so much less than you are. Consider what Paul said. God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. So God Almighty cares for me. When he gave you eternal life, he gave you the height of any gift he could ever give you. He cares for you. But secondly, God loves you so much that not only does he care for you, he'll correct me. You say, oh, thanks a lot. Oh, I must be his favorite, <laughs> judging from the way I've been corrected lately. <laughs> well, Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 7 says that if we're not corrected by the Lord, it may mean that we're not even Christians at all because a father corrects his children. He corrects his children not to punish them. Now, I know there are perverted fathers and mothers. I know there are evil parents in the world. And I know there may be some of you that were raised by such parents. I, I know that and my heart goes out to you, but we need to put them over here because that's not the way parents were created to be. But we have a heavenly father that shows his love by correcting us. Now, before I became a Christian, God dealt with me as a sinner. And when I go to heaven, he'll relate to me um, as a steward or as a servant and give me my reward. But right now, he relates to me as a son. He relates to me uh, or to you as a daughter, as a, as a child. And God shows his love because he uh, because he corrects me. He shows us his grace, but it's not like some people teach. Uh, grace means sin doesn't matter. That's not true. Uh, grace doesn't mean that we don't have to repent or that we should never do any of those things. That's silly teaching. It's a doctrine of devils and it's not true. Grace is greater than our sin and we can appeal to grace, but we must never flaunt grace. So what we've got is a God who cares for us, a God who corrects us. And, and not only does he care for me and correct me, but he has compassion. He has compassion. You've all known people that'll do the right thing only because it's the right thing. But you know, you also have known people. You've also known people. Oh, thank you, my brother. You read my, my spirit. That's good. Everybody go ahead and take a sip. It's okay. Oh, somebody was listening to the Lord. Thank you. Thank you. But he has compassion for me. Listen to the way, uh, you know, Jesus told the story about someone that knew the master as a hard man. I knew you were a hard man and you were like this and you're harsh to deal with us. But this is what the Lord tells us. This, and this is Old Testament. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate 
to those who fear him. For he knows how weak we are. He remembers we are only dust. See, he doesn't just love me. He loves me with an attitude. He loves me strongly and strategically. And I know I've told you when we used to do family devotion, we, the kids loved it when we'd come to Psalm 1 or 3 in our reading because the King James and other versions say, he remembereth that we are but dust. And they said, hey, he called us but dust. He called us but dust. I want to tell you, loved ones, a father's heart breaks for his children. A true father wouldn't hesitate to give his life for his child. I can tell you how you know a true father. He, w- he wouldn't hesitate to give his life. He wouldn't hesitate to die for his child, but he wouldn't hesitate to live for his child either. And God says, I love you and I care for you. But he said, I love you with compassion. In other words, he said, love may require me to do this, but I'm going to do this because of the depth of my love. That's why John said, behold, what manner of love the father has bestowed on us that we should be called his children. And fourthly, God almighty not only loves me and corrects me and has compassion on me, but he loves to have companionship with me. He's ever present. I'll tell you the thing about God as you begin to know him, maybe new Christians don't know this yet, but you will as you grow in him. God has the ability to love you in such a way he makes you feel undoubtedly that, he's your, that, that you're his favorite. Everybody that's begun to walk in intimacy with God say, Lord, what manner of love that you would choose me to be your favorite. You know, my, my mama was like that. I, I, us boys would get into a fight, uh, you know, jokingly, but we'd get into a fight. Well, I was her favorite. No. I mean, it was worse than the Smothers Brothers, those of you old enough to remember that. Because my, my, my mother had the ability to just put your mind to rest. I love you more than anybody in the world. You know, and, and, it's, and it's, like, it's like a book I read, a man that wrote a book on, on fathering, and he dedicated it to his four children. And he began to, to write to each of those four children. And he came to the end of the paragraph of the eldest. And he said, I guess by now you figured out that you were my favorite child. And I, I thought, oh, this is, this, who, who would be so stupid as to say that where the other children could read it? Then he wrote to the second child. And he wrote about the second child. And he said, and don't tell anyone, but you're my favorite child. Then he wrote to the third one. He said, let me begin by telling you, you're my favorite child. And then he did it with the fourth child. You are my favorite child. And I thought, this man gets it. This man gets it. God loves you so intensely and so intentionally that if you'll give it an honest evaluation, you'll say, I don't know what I've done, but I'm his favorite. I'm clearly his favorite. Now, we are created to be specially loved But secondly, we are creatures with an eternal destiny. (laughs) The scripture says three things are going to happen. And loved ones, this needs to get put at the front of our theology and no longer at the back. We are in a culture of Christians that have succumbed to the enemy's plan to make our past myth and to make our future mystery. No two books are attacked in the Bible more than the book of Genesis that tells of God's creation and the book of Revelation that tells how everything's going to end. So this is what the enemy has done successfully to, I will say, the majority of Christians in America. He's so confused their minds that they believe that Genesis is a collection of myth. And that, myst- and that revelation is so confusing that we can't understand it. And Genesis is not myth, and revelation is not mystery. They are two books that need to come alive afresh. I tell you what, abortion would not be allowed in the land if we really believed that mankind is the special object of God's creation. Uh, uh, violence would be seriously curved if we as a society understood 
The sin of violence and of hating your brother and murder that's depicted in Genesis. And that's why life is cheap. That's why, you know, older folks are sent to nursing homes to die. That's why children, you know, we, we, you find more commercials about taking care of abandoned dogs and spotted owls than you would ever see about the life of an unborn child. Why? Because as a society, we say Genesis is a myth. And it's perpetrated and propagated and held up by the church saying that Genesis is not something for us to take seriously. We do the same thing with Revelation. Boy, it's quiet in here. Justin, if you want to come take over anytime, you let me know. But don't interpret this as a, I'm giving up. We need to get back to the book of Revelation and understand that it is our hope for the future. And even those of us that love Revelation, we don't know what to do with it. So we say, well, all of that must be after the rapture. And we don't even want to entertain the possibility of difficulty. So we just say, well, all that's after the rapture. And, and I'm not here to discuss whether that's true or not true, but I'm saying we have held at arm's length the two books that give us our identity and give us our future. Everything in the middle we love. Not sure what to do with the Song of Solomon yet, but everything else we love. <laughs> but the thing that makes me what I am, we say it's myth. It doesn't matter. You know, it, it, it just doesn't matter. The, 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 I, I want to I tell you, the first three chapters of, of Genesis form your worldview and your self-esteem. And when you get over here to Revelation, the only hope we have, the only cure for hopelessness is to embrace the message of Revelation. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and His Christ. Eternal destiny. Number one, Christ is going to appear. It is not metaphorical. It is not allegorical. His incarnation, as one preacher said, was act one of the drama. His return is act two of the drama. The, the writer says that he will come a second time without sin unto salvation. And Jesus has never had any sin. <coughs> but what that passage means when it says he will come and appear a second time without sin, he's not coming to deal with sin as he did the first time. Now, he will certainly deal with sin, but he's coming to set everything right without sin unto salvation. That's why the book of Revelation says, if you're going to be wicked, just be wicked still. If you're going to be righteous, be righteous still. He says the day is coming and it's coming soon when Christ will come to set everything in order. He's going to appear. And this is the second thing he says about this eternal destiny. We will see Christ as he is. We will see him. Now that's going to cause something to happen that is phenomenal. We will see him in his glory. You see, even after he was resurrected from the dead and had not yet ascended to the Father, and, and even after he had, he was not always recognized immediately, even by those closest to him. And now that he has ascended to the Father, it seems there's even greater manifestation of glory. But it's not just that he's going to come, and it's not just that we're going to see him as he is, but the third thing is that something will be triggered in us when we see him. We shall become like him. Like him. 1 Timothy 6 says that he is creating for himself a church without spot, blameless until his appearing. Right now, Timothy, Paul said to Timothy, he is in unapproachable light. <laughs> but when he comes again, that unapproachable glory will overtake us and this mortal shall put on immortality. And this weakness shall put on strength and we will be new creations. Why? Because we see him. I had a dream years ago. I told you about the, I called it the door of his glory. 
And in that dream, it was just a, a door. I knew the Lord was behind it. I don't have time to deal with it all now, but I knew the Lord was behind it. And there was an otherworldly light that was permeating from around the openings of the door. And an angel of the Lord told me I could open the door and go in. And I knew, I, I, I can't relate the glory of that dream, but I knew as I got closer to the door, I knew that to open the door would kill me. But I also knew if I didn't open the door, that would kill me. And I, I remember as I got closer, I even turned to the angel and said, please tell my wife and children what happened to me. I don't know what this is going to look like to them, but I'm going to the light. And as I reached and I began, began to be overwhelmed with a sense of glory, and then I woke up and obviously I lived means I didn't get the door open, but I tell you, that's a very scriptural concept because he dwells in unapproachable light. And when we see him, everything about us that is frail and of this world will change. <coughs> We're created to be specially loved. We're creatures with an eternal destiny. We are crafted with a heavenly design. That means <coughs> we live with limitations now. And that tells us also that the place of heaven will be another dimension entirely. Loved ones, I wish I could talk more about it, but time doesn't permit. This life is not all I will be. This life is not all I will know. This life is not all I will embrace. And this life is not all I understand. When you get troubled with this world, understand I am specially loved. I have an eternal destiny. And there is a heavenly design in me ready to kick in when I see him. <coughs> the last thing I want you to remember is that we are citizens of another kingdom. We are citizens of another kingdom. Let me tell you one more story and then I'll close. But I was in Bible college um, and the year was 1975. And uh, I, I won't tell you the whole dream because it would take probably 20 minutes to do that. But God had begun in that era of my life to begin to speak to me through dreams and visions, things like that. And this was the first that I would call an epic dream since I had been a child. And God showed me what I believe to be the last days. He showed me persecution. He showed me a destruction um, of uh, churches that had been built on a faulty foundation. He showed me the purging of the saints, the purifying of the bride of Christ, showed me incredible persecution. He showed me what was going on in some nations that again, I don't have time. It, it, would, it would be irrelevant to tell you that. But I was horrified by the persecution that I saw. I was horrified by what was being done to the people of God. And I woke up in absolute panic. I knew that I had heard from the Lord, but I didn't know what to do with it. And as I began to call out in my dorm room, I said, God, what does this mean? What do I do with this? I know this is you. What do I do with this? the spirit of the Lord began to speak to me. I wasn't fully awake yet. And he said, what did you hear in the background while all of this was going on? And I knew immediately what it was. I said, I heard a song. And the song was, even so, Lord Jesus, come. And that's the way the book of Revelation ends in Revelation 22, verse 20. When all is said and done, when all the admonitions are given, when all the warnings have been given, the prayer of the church is to be even so come Lord Jesus. And, and all of that fear and anxiety immediately passed into calm. I was drenched with sweat. My face was covered in tears. But an amazing calm came over me. And he said, this is what I am after I am after a church whose priority is the return of my son. When the church can cry out to me in the midst of all that's going on, 
Even so, come, Lord Jesus, they will have reached a place of maturity where I can do all that I've intended to do. I didn't understand that in 1975. I understood it, but I didn't understand the dynamic of it. But loved ones, I want to tell you, I believe with all my heart. I believe with all Justin's heart. I believe with everything that's within me. God is, is doing what he can do without forcing us. He still wants us to have free moral agency. But God is, is taking us through miserable times. And I will tell you this, they are not over. They are not over. God is taking us through miserable times to give us a channel. Are you ready for this? To give us a channel in which we can step out of fascination with this world into an adoration of his coming. That's what he's after. Some of you need to get off social media. Some of you need to stop sending emails. Some of you need to understand your opinion isn't nearly as valuable to the world as you think it is. Some of us need to remember that in an attempt to be heard, we have eviscerated those that love us most. Oh, nah. We, I tell you what's come out of 2020 to me, in my opinion, we have mastered taking evil and seasoning it with our anger and our rage. And we have created situations that cannot be solved. Not the way we're approaching them. You've got to learn the things that you hear, the things that have been given to you. You've got to learn to forgive and let it go or you'll be bound by that the rest of your life. That's a hard lesson to learn. Let me explain it this way. The Bible says that Jesus endured the unendurable. He endured the unthinkable. It was so bad that in Gethsemane, he asked Father if there was any other way I mean, you'd think if anybody knew that, Jesus knew that. And I believe he did. But it was so bad what he was going through. He said, Lord, if there is any other way, if I've missed something, let me hear any other options you've got. But if not, your will be done. And this is the way the writer in Hebrews put it. This is what we've got to grab onto. He endured the cross, despising the shame why? For the joy set before him. That's me. That's you. That's his church. We have no intention of enduring the unendurable because I've got rights as a child of God. I'm a king's kid. Don't give me any of this stuff. I'm a king's kid. I belong to him. You do. And that's why you get a membership card, gold-plated membership card, in the fellowship of his sufferings. No, the only way, the only way we can endure what we've been through and what we may face individually is to have our eyes set on something else. That's the only way we can endure it. And loved ones, if you're wanting this church to come up with a new program to make you happy, if you're wanting this church to resolve every racial inequality and resolve every judicial inequality and, and resolve every political inequality, we don't know how, we don't even know for sure where the inequalities are. There's plenty to go around. But if you want to join a journey of people going to heaven, oh, God will take care of our hurts. God will take care of what's been wrong. But he won't do it through our rage and anger. I ask you to give me two weeks. We'll pick it up next week. Father, in Jesus' name, let the coming of Christ come alive in us again. Let us pivot toward heaven. Let us put our pivot foot down right now so that we can keep our eyes on heaven we're not pivoting for any other institution except the kingdom of heaven. 
Help us with our anger. Help us with our arrogance. Help us with our, with every false idol we've set up. Forgive us, forgive us.